Anyway, if you have your Bibles, please join me in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Now, I'm doing a series here on Hebrews, and you would think a series you'd start in chapter 1 and go all the way through, but I kind of want to give a what I think are the most important areas of, of Hebrews. Uh, just a reminder that uh, the authorship of Hebrews is unknown, but if I had to take a guess, uh, I would say either Barnabas or Clement, but that's serious guess, because there's a lot of, uh, a lot of different views. Paul wrote it, uh, Apollos, uh, but basically it, it's still unknown although it did make it in the canon. So it was written sometime around 95 AD. Clement had actually made reference to it, some of his writings, so Clement would have been familiar with it. The theme is Jesus is the high priest. That's the theme of Hebrews. Now, last week when we were together, uh, we looked at Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, and Hebrews 6, 1 through 3 reminded us Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. We looked at that word maturity meant perfection. We, we often think, well, we just grow, we grow up in, in knowledge and grace, and that's true. But the goal of the Christian life is still perfection, and the author of Hebrews does it. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. In other words, don't go back over the foundation again and again and again. And uh, actually, on the heels of that, the writer of Hebrew writes in, in uh, 6.4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then having fallen away, in other words, losing your salvation, having fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So the, the author of Hebrews is saying that once you are in Christ, you were always in Christ. And so you're left with two options for those that believe you can lose your salvation. Uh, I, I worry for them because you're left with two options. Once saved, always saved, or once saved, once lost, never to be saved again. Those are your two options. And uh, a lot of people, they live their Christian life as this Christ is not really powerful enough to keep them saved. And that's quite sad. Well, this morning, I, I want to look at Jesus. And that's probably a good thing in the sermon to look at Jesus. And uh, what we're going to learn this morning is really about the throne of grace. That is that wonderful place, the abode of God, where Christ reigns at the right hand of our father, Abba, and who lives to make intercession, 1 John chapter 2, lives to make intercession for us as we live our lives here and now. 
So what we're going to learn this morning is Jesus is our high priest. That's the, actually, this is uh, great verses about Jesus. Now let's look at who he is. There's five characteristics that the author of Hebrews gives in reference to Jesus being the high priest. Since we have, this is verse 14a, since we have a great high priest. Now, kind of refresh our memory. The great high, the high priest in the Old Testament was actually uh, appointed by God, and he was responsible to mediate between God and man. So the high priest would take the sacrifice. Uh, he would go and he'd make sacrifice on behalf of the person that is offering the sacrifice. Their sins would be forgiven. But once a year on Yom Kemper, that priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would offer on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. And the priest uh, wouldn't stay in there too long. It was only for a certain amount of time. But the fact is, he says that Jesus is our great high priest. He is the chief priest. John MacArthur writes in his commentary, as we learn from Leviticus 16, before the high priest could even enter the Holy of Holies, he had to make an offering for himself because he was a sinner. <laughs> His time was limited in the Holy of Holies and was allowed to stay in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God only while he was making the sacrifice. So I want you to think about this. The physical priest in the Old Testament could only go in that Holy of Holies once a year. And if you were to look into the, to the, uh, to the first section of the, of the tabernacle, you would see the lampstand, you would see the 12 loaves over here representing, then you would see an altar of incense, and then you would make it into the Holy of Holies. There was this, this rigid system in which the priest would have to operate. And he says here, since we have a great high priest, archaeros, which means the highest priest. This priest is our high priest. He functions the same way that the earthly priest did in the nation of Israel, except Jesus is in the Holy of Holies for us all the time. He's in the presence of God. You don't need a pastor to get you there. You don't need uh, Sunday school to get you there. You don't need deacons to get you there. You can go into the Holy of Holies yourself because of what Christ did. And Jesus is there reigning, making intercession on our behalf. He is the great high priest. And see, the thing is, in the letter of Hebrews, the Jews were still trying to hang on to this idea that you still have the high priest, you still have these sacrifices, and you still need to do these things even though they were saved in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you don't need that. You don't need that. Chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than all of that. And so you don't need that. And you, I, I have a friend, uh, y'all may have some of you that are older, that uh, not older in a sense of, with under my ministry 15 years when we when i first got here within the first two years i invited my friend kurt glebe down 
Kurt Glebe is a Messianic Jew, and he did a wonderful service for us, and he talks about how he takes the Jewish elements and converts them into Christ, quite, quite wonderfully. The, the, the lampstand represents Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The, the, the showbread, which there were 12 of them for the 12 tribes, I am the bread of life. And he was a aroma before God, just before you get into the Holy of Holies. So quite amazing. He is our high priest. There's nobody higher. Nobody else can do what Jesus did. He's secondly, not only higher, but he is supernatural. Notice verse 14. This, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, diarchomai, that means to travel through something. And there seems to be within this uh, diarchomai who passed through, which is one word in the Greek, there's this idea of traveling space and time. Now, the high priest couldn't do that. In the Jewish day, the high priest was physical. He was actually a sinner. And so he could not travel through space and time. And so this is another element of why Jesus is the great high priest, the chief high priest. He has traveled through the heavens, Betanos has different meanings. It can mean sky, where the birds fly. can mean the sun, the moon. But ultimately, I think this means the abode of God. Again, the priest could only do what the writer of Hebrews will later say uh, is a shadow of what is to come. He could not actually get to the kingdom of God in heaven. But Jesus did. It says, who passed through the heavens. Thomas Lay, in his commentary, writes this, The priest of Aaron served as an earthly sanctuary. Jesus went far beyond the limits of time and space, which comes from his word, time and space, and reached into God's presence where his work really mattered. So when you think about Jesus being supernatural... Brothers and sisters, if you read the Gospels, if you just take the Gospel accounts, look at all the miracles that Jesus did. People question, who is this man that even the waves and the seas obey? Well, of course, it's Jesus, the great high priest who has landed on this earth and will be a sinless sacrifice acceptable to God. This, this was seen so many ways. If you go back and you just look at the Gospels, it was seen in so many ways. Causing the lame to walk. Causing the blind to see. Raising people from the dead. Nobody else could do that. Nobody else has done that in the rest of history. Nobody has ever been raised from the dead that didn't involve Jesus Christ. That's quite amazing. No, think, think of it. No other religion in the world boasts a risen Savior. That makes Christianity unique. That makes Jesus unique. That makes him supernatural. Only Jesus could do that. Thirdly, not only is he the high priest and he is supernatural, but thirdly, he is the Son of God. Notice what the writer writes. Jesus, the Son of God. End of discussion. Finished. 1 John 5, 20. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. That's Jesus. And we are in him who is true. That's us. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. One of the things here that, that I thought about, being the Son of God, he represented God on this earth and therefore was God. Did not Jesus say, to see me is to see the Father. I and the Father are one. Think of that. And you could understand why the Jewish people would have difficulties with this, because all they knew was the covenant and the high priest and the sacrifices. They could not wrap their minds around the fact that one man who, who claimed and was the, the Son of God could actually be the Son of God. And yet, he was. And the writer here is trying to pry their fingers off of the Old Testament sacrificial system and show that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He was our high priest. He was supernatural. He was the Son of God. This is the big one. I mean, I know the others are great, and, and I love them. But this one really cuts to the quick. Look at verse 15. For we do not, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. This, this is an interesting word. Sympathize. Sympatho. Sympatho. It does sound like sympathize in the, in the English language. Sympatho. You ready for the meaning of this? One who is able to sympathize? This word sympatho means to walk alongside. Let me remind us all this morning that Jesus walks with you. You are never alone. And yet this great high priest who reigns in heaven has given us the Holy Spirit. He walks along with us. There is never a point in time in your life when you can say, as a believer, you can say, I am alone. Because the one who raised people from the dead, who has supernatural power, who makes intercession for you, walks with you through every aspect of your life. And in that, we can rejoice. You are never alone. You are never outside of that. And, and Jesus is sympathetic. Jesus knows what it is like to hurt. Let me just go through some of the emotions that Jesus showed. Let me say this. When I was a little kid, and again, it was in the 60s, and I was a little kid. <laughs> my brother and I, with my dad, one of the rare times I ever remember my dad actually doing stuff with us. We were at this little, in front of Grant's grocery store there in Titusville, Florida, and we, there was this, there was a circus or a carnival going on, and I remembered, don't ask me why, 
there was a little statue of Buddha. And I wanted Buddha. Now, of course, God remembers. He's got a sense of humor, too. But My dad told my brother, let your brother have Buddha. So I guess I got Buddha, and somewhere along the line, Buddha got lost. Buddha's dead. Every so-called religion has a dead leader. I and you have a leader who walks with us, is very much alive, and can sympathize. Do you know, when you look at the Gospels, and I would encourage you this, start reading, reading the Gospels. When you look at Jesus... Jesus was sympathetic to the plights of people that the religious elite wouldn't touch. They wouldn't come near a leper. Jesus said, come. The people in our lives that we think can never be saved, pray for them. There is nobody too far gone or too far out of God's reach where he can't Pull them up to salvation. We have a high priest who cried. Do you all cry? We had a high priest who is funny. You say, "How Jesus was never funny. Uh, those of you that worry about the speck in your brother's eye worry about the log in your own. That's kind of comical. We have a high priest who loved, who touched, who held people. Guess what? He knows us. He knows you. He knows me. He knows the frustrations and the hardships and the trials and the sufferings that we go through because in every way Jesus was tempted as we are, except, you ready for this one, he didn't sin. So you think, well, Jesus doesn't understand what I'm going through. Yes, he does. He says, we, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. How many of you sinned this week? Just a show of hands and then I'll come visit you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we all done that. Jesus understands our frustrations, our heartaches, and guess what? Our weaknesses. Let me, I don't think I can stress this enough. You are never alone. You are never alone. He walks with you through the storms of life. Number five, not only is Jesus our high priest, is he supernatural, he's the son of God, he's sympathetic, but number five, he is sinless. And yet, without sin. This is interesting. Horis Harmartia. And what these word without means apart from wrongdoing. Yet without sin, he was apart from wrongdoing. This means, and this would have particularly struck the Jewish mindset in which they realized that in order to get into the Holy of Holies, you had to be sinless. And so the writer here is saying, look, you look to Jesus who was without sin. And he lived this life. Jesus was not inoculated 
from stuff. He came to this world and he lived a sinless life and he took that sinless life and he put it on the cross to pay for your sin and for mine. Without or apart from wrongdoing. There's nobody that has ever walked the earth except Jesus Christ who lived a sinless life. He was perfect. If Jesus was a batting average, he'd be batting a thousand. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who, know, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For, the, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. What happened on the cross, what happened on the cross was the, the sinless perfection of Christ. Christ literally became sin on the cross. The wrath of God was being, Romans writes, the wrath, Paul writes in Romans, uh, that the wrath of God was being poured out on Christ to pay for your sins. And in that moment when the fellowship probably for the first time in ever, well, not probably, it was, the first time ever, he, Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why, is you, why have thou forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus was paying for our sin. Guess what? That's the only way. What that was saying was that Christ was the perfect Passover lamb. He took your sin, took mine, paid for it in full. It's done. And therefore, it is impossible to renew those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the gifts of the Holy Spirit if they should fall away to renew them again because Jesus already did that. He already paid for it. It was done. It was finished. He is sinless. He is the Son of God. He is sympathetic. He is supernatural. So what is our response? And there's, there's two let us res responses here in this text. Jesus is our high priest who he is. We looked at five things that he was. And our response to this, let us hold fast to our confession. Hold fast, crato means to cause or to continue to do something. Confession, homologia, homologia, to express, listen to this, to express one's allegiance to someone. Uh, I recently, um, I recently watched this, watched this entire series and Churchill's secret agents, they go back to World War II. By, by the way, the, uh, the SOE was responsible for a lot of the uh, disruption of the German war machine. Actually, on D-Day, they disrupted the German war machine so much that there were 10 battalions that were not able to make it to the landing because the SOE actually prevented them from doing it. So this series goes back through the syllabus and they, they, they started with, I, I think they started with 12 or 13 people and through a process of elimination, they got down to six. And they broke those up into two teams and they gave them a mission and they had to try to accomplish that mission. 
one of the things that they had to learn was they were given a identity. They were given an identity. And they had to memorize that identity. Where if they were questioned, a fascinating series because it goes back and it talks about real life, a real life operative, and then they start back with the series. They talk about a real life operative, what happened. And it, so a series goes back and forth. But they were given an identity and they had to learn that identity in case they ran into Nazi officers and things that would question them about their identity. And it got real surreal on the fifth episode where they woke them up out of their beds like they did when they were being held by the Germans and they took them, this guy on the right here was the, represented the Nazis and he would question them. Now at that point, at that point they had eight. They had eight. Two of them froze during the investigation, during the interrogation. The one lady stood there and she fumbled around with her answers because she did not remember her identity. After the interrogation, which was kind of brutal, Audrey said, I can't watch this. But can you imagine real life what these SOE operatives had to go through? This was, this was just to show them how dangerous it could be. One guy was quite smart and he wouldn't answer. But eventually he exposed his identity little by little. Quite amazing. Six of them passed and those are the ones that went on to the final mission. But you know what? They never forgot their identity. Jesus, the author here is saying, let us hold fast to our confession. Never forget who you are. Never forget who you are in Christ. You are a child of God. Never forget that. And when you're interrogated by this world, give an answer for the reason that you believe. Tell people, this is why I believe Jesus Christ. This is why, <laughs> this is why I'm holding fast to my confession. Confession means to express one's allegiance to. Your allegiance first and foremost is to Christ. And when the world interrogates you, just tell them, I'm a child of God, I'm saved, I'm born again, and this is what Jesus has done in my life. Tell them, never forget who you are in Christ. And hold fast to that. And I tell you what, it will get bumpy. Many of you all already know that. It will get bumpy. Don't be like the ones who said, fumbled around with their identity. So draw near to the throne. This is the good part. Jesus is our high priest. Our response is that we're going to hold fast. We know that he's our high priest in our hearts. We know he's our high priest. Let us, that's the second let us. I almost entitled the sermon, let us. <laughs> not like let us, but let us. Let us with confidence. Notice confession and confidence. Let us with confidence draw near. I, have, I haven't really gotten warmed up yet. I'm just now starting to get warmed up. <laughs> let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Prosercomai. To approach or come near to approach or come near.
Queen Elizabeth, um, when you you watch some of these shows, they would have to they would have to curtsy, they would have to stop again. But when they're approaching the queen, which it's pomp and circumstance, uh, a lot of these shows, Queen Victoria, all these shows, the same thing. People had to bow, then they had to bow again, and then they had to bow again. But as they're approaching the queen, which today you probably don't do it because there's armed guards around, but <laughs> he says, let us go to the throne. Now, obviously, we do bow before the throne. Let us with confidence, not with fear. I still remember the Wizard of Oz the cowardly lion. I do believe, I do believe in spooks. I do. It's just like, he's afraid. He's afraid to go before. And that big head guy in the Wizard of Oz, which was really all fake. <laughs> when we think about the throne of God, this is, uh, this is something, this is what I like to do when I, when I pray. I, I close my eyes and I envision God sitting on his throne. And as I approach that throne, I'm approaching knowing, knowing that God has given me the confidence to go before him and that I can tell him anything that I want to tell him. I have that right as a child of God. It was given to me. It was given to you that you can approach the throne of God with confidence. With confidence. And this throne of grace. You know, Ephesians 3.12, this is in another book. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Brothers and sisters, that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week we can go to the throne of God. Maybe you're in a tough situation, you go to the throne of God. And I honestly think it does help when you get a vision of God. Not like a charismatic vision, but a picture, an image of God. And, and you see him sitting on the throne and however that image comes up, you have the right to go before God. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. Although I'm willing to pray with any of you at any time, you all know that. You don't really need me. You can do this on your own. Because he gave you the right to do that. This was in the Jewish mindset. Oh, only the priest can do that. Well, Jesus is our high priest. Therefore, you can go before the throne. You have the right. Peter says it this way. Guess what, guys? You are, and this is all of us, you are a royal priesthood. Guess what? You are now a priest or a priestess. You have the right to go before God at any time. This throne of grace, uh, Ray Stedman wrote, the throne of grace to which we come for help is pictured by the mercy seat in the old tabernacle. That mercy seat where God could meet with sinful humans 
because of the blood sacrifice sprinkled upon it, which the priest did uh, during the Day of Atonement, is the throne of power in the universe from which grace constantly flows to the needy supplements, to those who need it. When you go to God, the one thing I want you to take away from here, when you go to God, you should know that it is a throne of grace. Horus is the Greek word for grace, meaning, you ready for this? God's unmerited, undeserved favor bestowed upon you. People get this wrong image of God that he's angry, he's mad, he just wants to zap people. That is the furthest thing from the truth. There is a judgment day coming. There is a day when God's going to judge the world. We know that. But for us, for those of us who believe, it is a throne of grace. It is a place of rest. It is a place of mercy. It is a place where we find a benevolent, loving God who cares for you and loves you. And yes, as you come before the throne of grace, it wouldn't hurt if you said, look, Lord, I have sinned, I've stumbled. And Jesus said, I understand that. I understand that. And we shouldn't go to God saying, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me all the time. We go to that throne of grace with confidence and with understanding that it is a place where we find a loving God. God who loves us. And from that, that's our action. Our action requires us to go before God. It's on our side. It's on our side. Yes, he's our high priest. Of course, our response is let us hold fast to the confession. And then... God's response in verse 16b. God's response in verse 16b. That we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. God gives us two things. He gives us mercy and he gives us grace. This word mercy refers to showing kindness and love. David Allen, in his commentary, wrote this. It is usually along the lines of mercy and the forgiveness of sin and grace needed in assistance for some trial and temptation. Grace to help in time of need. Listen, whenever you need God's mercy and grace, already said in this sermon that he walks with us, that we can go before the throne of grace. And you know what I'm finding, what I think is true, is the reason that we sometimes are unsettled, sometimes bewildered, sometimes belief that God is nowhere near us, it's because we don't spend time with him. You cannot make it through this life without spending time with the one who redeemed you. And so, of course, when your relationship is not where it should be, and y'all know when it is and when it isn't, the reason we don't sense his presence is because of something that we've been doing in our lives that we shouldn't be doing, 
and therefore we should feel unsettled, but you never lose your salvation. That's settled. I will die on that phrase. You cannot lose your salvation once you've been redeemed. But as we go through this life, God stands ready to give us mercy and grace in every circumstance, every situation. You know what? I've been through many, many people that have all kinds of issues. One of the things that I like to, how's your relationship with Christ? Some of the situations we get ourselves into is because of what we've done. And then, of course, others are just things that come along. And I guess it's right for us to feel like God is distant if we're not close to him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So that relationship, really think about it. Knowing that we have a personal relationship with the one who created the universe, hung the stars, solar system, who redeemed us at the foot of the cross, knowing all of that, shouldn't we spend a lot of our time there? And when we do, of course we know. I've met Christians that have blown me away. Man, how can you be so confident in this situation? How are you able to function with this? And you know what? I've seen a lot of great Christians that never stood in the pulpit, that were never deacons. I've seen a lot of great Christians that I go, I'm in awe of. That happened once to Jesus. Jesus marveled at his faith. I want to be that person. And of course, some of this happened when I was a younger pastor. And I've grown some since then. I'm not perfect, nowhere near it. But we can actually go through this life knowing that he goes with us. Please know this. He loves you. Not, not the Joel Osteen type love. Throw that out. But the, he loves you. Because he paid for your sin. And he will walk with you through this life. And as we develop that ongoing relationship with him, we begin to become more confident and more assured that he is with us through the storms of life. And that we can make it through safely to the other side. I heard one pastor say, as years ago, uh, he said, as you're praying, if you die, you can say, as I was saying. You're praying on this side and you wake up and as I was saying, God, that's kind of the relationship. Where you are in tune with God so that you can see his workings around you. And again, this is short circuiting the mindset of the reader who was Jewish, who would not let go of the of the sacrificial system. And he was saying, look, you don't need this stuff. All you need is Jesus. So what this means for us is this. Number one, theological implications of these verses. Number one, we can trust Jesus. 
we can trust Jesus. He's our high priest who cares for us and lives to make intercession for us before the Father, who, by the way, is at the right hand of the Father, which is the place of power and prestige. When trials and troubles come, go confidently to the throne of grace. Do you have trials or troubles right now? Take it to God. Yes, it's fine to ask others to pray for you and tell them about your hardships. We should. We're to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. But take it to God. Take it directly to Him. And God will respond, whether it's the need for forgiveness of sin or helping you through trials. God stands ready to help. Let's, let's pray.